Stan, when you were a child, would you color within the lines? Uh, never colored within the lines. I was uh, the kind of oddball kid. I, uh, I enjoyed old movies from a very young age. My parents were both very young when they had us, my sister and I. I think my mother was 22. And so because of that, when I got to be of an age where she could drop me somewhere on a weekend, she would do that so she could have some time to herself because she was still in her 20s. And frequently it was my grandparents. And when it wasn't, it was some place. So maybe it was an arts and crafts thing at the museum. And then one weekend it was the Lido Theater on Pico. And they were showing a W.C. Fields double feature. You can't cheat an honest man and never give a sucker an even break. And uh, I was alone with my popcorn for four hours and this black and white majesty was happening on the screen. And if a kid at nine years old can have an epiphany, I had one. And from that point on, I watched black and white movies whenever I could. And it usually was in the middle of the night. Unbeknownst to my parents, I would sneak downstairs. I would turn on Channel 11 or Channel 13. And in between used car commercials, I would watch Night at the Opera, Day at the Races. And then I learned about Laurel and Hardy. And so then I moved on to them. And then I moved on to, to Humphrey Bogart and Spencer Tracy. And so by the time I finished middle school and high school, I had a journal where I would, had kept notes of all of these black and white movies I had seen. And in my junior year of high school, I trick-or-treated at Groucho Marx's house and met Groucho. And then Groucho invited me and six friends to come back and we spent the day with him, which was glorious. So no, I definitely did not color inside the lines. Did he pass out good candy, by the way? Well, so the four of us went as, as the Marx brothers and I went as Groucho. And uh, we had memorized bits from their movies. And what happened was we were on our way to the high school Halloween party. And uh, one of the dads said, uh, you know, I know where Groucho lives. Why don't we stop? You'll tell your friends that you trick-or-treated at Groucho's house when you get to the party. And we went, okay. And never figuring we'd ever see him. And so we drove all the way up to the top of Truesdale in Beverly Hills. And we rang the bell and wait, wait, wait. And then all of a sudden we hear, yes. And we go, trick-or-treat. By the way, the houses up there were, you know, miles apart. So nobody was trick-or-treating ever. So these big giant white doors open and it was like Valhalla because it was an all white interior, very modern. And the front of the house went to all the way to the back of the house and in the back of the house was a white wall with the sketch of Groucho from an evening Groucho. So there was no doubt where you were. And so she goes, oh Lord, she sees us, oh Lord. And she goes, I gotta go get something for you to have. So she departs. So now the four of us are standing in this little glow of the light in, in the portico. And we're waiting for her to come back. And Groucho's partner, girlfriend, whatever, Aaron Fleming, crossed from one side of the house to the other, looked down and saw us, this diminutive Marx Brothers. And she says, Groucho, you gotta come see this. And of course he came from the last room in the house and he starts coming towards us. And it wasn't until he got about halfway down the hall, it dawned on me that I was him. Like I, we had been the Marx Brothers as a unit, but as he got to me, I realized I was Groucho. And I look around and my friends have bailed. They are too scared, they're off in the shadows now. So now I'm standing right in this glow and he's coming at me and I, I can literally see my heart beating out of my white shirt. And I'm holding my little plastic cigar and my hand is shaking. And he finally gets to the door and there's beret and his cardigan sweater. And he looks at me and he's waiting for me to say something. And in my very best, 15-year-old Groucho, I say, well, it looks like I'm looking in the mirror. And Groucho returned by saying, no, you're much uglier. And I could die right then because I had been insulted by Groucho Marx. 
So that's pretty much how it went. And then my friends returned, and the, my friend John, who played Harpo, and I did two scenes from Coconuts and Day at the Races. He was delighted and, and then went on his way. And then Merv Griffin interviewed him about six months later, and he told the story on the Merv Griffin show, which made us, of course, so giggly happy. And then we had the, we called and said thank you. And he said, would you like to come up to the house and spend some time? And so we did. And uh, that's the photo and that's the autograph. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it was just, it was just sort of almost on a dare that you were going. It was all, it was never planned. It was all magical. It was, you know, in (laughs) hilariously in the 1970s, the city of Beverly Hills had a private phone book that was only delivered to people that lived there. And every resident of Beverly Hills was in the book. You could unlist your phone number, but you could not unlist your address. That's how the star maps were made. And and then, of course, horrible things started to happen, and that was the end of that. But at the time, we just opened the book and flipped to Groucho Marx, and it said where he was living. So we knew exactly where to go. Thinking back to that experience and how sort of this dare, this sort I mean, it wasn't planned... How much has that shaped your career as a producer, just taking risks like that? Or, or Oh, there's, I don't know that that shaped my career any other more than I felt like there was kismet that had happened and that how could I not pursue a career having had this incredible moment with Groucho Marx. And I mean, I thought was, there was something that had happened magically that I had to pursue. And I, look, I entered college as a pre-med, flunked out of organic chemistry on my first semester of my first year. And that was the end of that. And so uh, by the end of my four years, I, on a lark, I applied to the American Film Institute and got in and then started in a mailroom. So uh, my career has always sort of been shaped by not necessarily the path that anyone else expected me to take. Um, You know, I come out of AFI thinking I'm gonna be a producer of film instantly. um, And then I end up not being able to get a job for six months and starting in a mailroom, and the mailroom was for a television company. And that just sent my trajectory of my career towards television. And so I eventually producing television movies became what was right for me, but it wasn't a choice. I didn't, I, I have so far outlived my dreams. That little kid who was nine years old, who was sneaking downstairs to watch Laurel and Hardy, imagined himself in the movie business, but doing something, you know, getting to be on a set or being a sound man or a cameraman. But the idea that I would be a producer and have my own company and produce my own movies and travel all over the world to make movies and win an Emmy and Golden Globe, all that, none of that was ever in the in my imagination. I've gone far past what I ever imagined would happen for me. Those and that's so my wow. dad standing in the background who drove us. Wow. And that's Groucho. That's unbelievable. And he had just won the honorary Oscar, like two months before. Wow, that's so cool. I was so, and we asked him, and because the five of us really knew the Marx Brothers so well, we asked him, like, we, Margaret Dumont was always his foil. And we asked him, I don't know if you know who that is, but Margaret Dumont was in all of his movies and was sort of the straight woman. Oh, she was okay. like the Mrs. Rittenhouse. She was always the woman in the highfalutin job that they would poke fun at. Sure, and, uh, sure. Because right. most of their movies threw darts at the privileged class. Sure, and, um, okay. And so Groucho was always the lead that would be approached by this, you know, woman of airs. And it was always played by Margaret Dumont in every movie. And she goes back to when they were on uh, vaudeville. So she was, she was a foil for them early on. And so, of course, I said, why was she so good at keeping, I don't know how she kept a straight face in that, and with the chaos around her and with being with the funniest people on the planet. And 
He said, well, it was very simple. She didn't get it. She never thought we were funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure that was true. I'm sure she never thought they were funny. I mean, I, there's no way you could keep a straight face sure. with Groucho Marx, you know, hold me closer, hold me closer. If I wasn't any closer, I'd be behind you. You know, <laughs> how does she, how does that line happen? And right. she's deadpan serious. Right. Well, it's similar with Robin Williams, Mork and Mindy. Yes. So I don't know how yes. you would, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to. Yes. But she, but uh, having made the Mork and Mindy movie, I uh-huh. uh, did my research right. on that. Uh-huh. She, they, the people on that set broke every time. Oh, they did. Oh, okay. yeah, they would, okay, reset and start again. Yeah. But Margaret Dumont never. She never did. Never. Oh, interesting. No. Hmm. Now, she was, she had to be that good because she came from theater. So there was oh. no take two. Now, in the movies there were, but he, she had become their foil they did this amazing thing. When they did Coconuts, which is their first movie, which we're going off on a big tangent, but when they did their first movie, they took that screenplay and they went and acted it out all over the country in venues all over the country. In fact, that's the crew in Denver. Oh. That's the crew photo from when they were performing the Coconuts movie live. Now, it wasn't a movie yet. It was They had never made a movie. Wow. They did it live in uh, 35 cities, and every and the screenwriters were in the audience. And so, if the jokes didn't work, they rewrote it for the next city. And if those jokes didn't work, they would. so by the time they got to make the movie for MGM, the jokes were all killer jokes because they had performed them. It's like a stand-up getting ready to do his HBO special. Well, they're well, they'll do you know Chris Rock will do it 150 times so that every joke works. That's what they did. Now, no, obviously nobody does that for a comedy movie now. But that's why the coconuts has not. There's not one bit, one after another, that doesn't work. Wow! And, and vaudeville was from what? How long to? Well, the teens and twenties. Okay, it, was it stopped during in the, the depression. Thirties, the third. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. when people didn't have the, the kind of money, but also that when the talkies became big, then vaudeville uh-huh. ceased to have as much importance as you know, as the the talkie movies kind of replaced vaudeville. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. When you're producing, is it important for you to follow the rules or forge another path? I think. When you're a producer, you have to do both. Um, you have the business side and the creative side that you have to find a happy medium. So you have to follow the rules in terms of somebody's giving you money, whether it's a network or a studio, and they have an expectation of what you're going to give them. Uh, and so that's following some rules. You have a budget, you have a schedule, you have to finish in this amount of days you have, especially in the television business where we don't have the luxury of going over. You have to make sure that you spend the amount of money they give you and no more. And preferably no less. You want to put as much money on the screen as possible. So those are rules you got to follow. On the other hand, as a producer, I want to find the very best people possible in every position from acting to directing to craft service to hair and makeup. And then I want to create an environment so they can do their best work. And that may include coloring outside the lines. That may include some improv from them. Or that may include the hair and makeup people coming. You know, I know that the script calls for her to have her hair up in this scene. But I'll tell you, it doesn't feel right. She doesn't feel like that's what she wants. And I don't feel like that's what she should have. So, okay, let's do it the other way. So those rules you break. Um, I just directed Macy Gray in a movie. And she... uh, came to me after day one and said, uh, this hair and this makeup and this wardrobe is all wrong for this character. I know you never reshoot in television movies, but if there's any way I can redo my stuff from day one, I would like to redo it. And she came to the set the next day in a totally different wardrobe, totally different hair, totally different makeup, and she was right. She was dead on right. She had, we had gotten it wrong, and we reshot day one later in the schedule, but we did. We reshot day one because she was right. She was what we had planned from the script was not 
as good as what she had brought to the table. Um, she understood that character better than we did. And uh, so I think that's what you have to be open to that. And that's definitely breaking the rules. I think those rules are, are meant to be broken. I think you have to be open to the creative juices coming from anywhere. It's a really a, a team effort. It takes a village to make a movie. I mean, the, you know, John Ford said the best movies have happy accidents. And I think that's true. I think you have to be open to, you know, the famous shot in The Searchers where the cloud cover comes over. They have that giant vista and the cloud comes over and the DP was saying we're losing the light. And John Ford said, Didn't, don't cut because the, it was a metaphor for what was coming in the movie. And he saw it and he understood that that cloud cover he would never be able to get ever. And he said that, that was the happy accident and made Searcher so powerful. And he, you know, you have to be open to that. Who got you into producing? I got into producing because it's always, I was a producing fellow at the American Film Institute. So it was always my intention to produce. I, I had uh, been in college head of all of student programs. So I had produced concerts and lectures and dances and so theater, some theater. And so I had producing kind of in my bones and I had read up on famous producers like Selznick and Raul Walsh and I kind of admired what they did. Of course, they were in the studio system, which I knew I was never gonna have the luxury of being in. But I, I really wanted to be sort of that person on top that got to do everything but did nothing. You know, all of that, had got my arms around all of it but, and had creative say, but on the other hand, you know, wasn't responsible for any of their specific jobs. Um, but then, you know, mailroom, and then I was a reader, and then a development executive, and eventually I learned a lot about producing from working for Peter Goober and John Peters. I think we think those years, those four years, were like, you know, getting a master's PhD in producing. I watched how they packaged films, and, and then I learned how to line produce basically by making my first movie where I was on the hook for deficit for CBS, Pair of Aces with Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson, and my children's college education and my house was up against the, the, the film finishing and finishing on time and not going over budget. And so I took a crash course with the line producer and he was, he was very good at sitting me down going, these are the things you have to do, these are the things you shouldn't do. And by the time I did my second movie where I was on the hook, um, I kind of knew how to line produce. So now I was an executive producer, line producer, so I could do both the creative and I could do the, the financial. The creative probably came from working for Peter Goober and John Peters and the line producing came from, you know, trial by fire. If you don't mind me asking, Stan, how did you end up in a position where your house and your children's college education was on the line? So in, so in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when the television movie business was at its height, when CBS, NBC, ABC, and then eventually Fox all had movie nights. I mean, you don't remember, but at the time, there was a movie night on CBS, NBC, ABC, on, all on Sunday night. So at nine o'clock, there was a movie on against each other. Then CBS had a Tuesday night movie, and NBC had a Monday night movie. All of those movies were made by independent suppliers because the studios didn't want to be in the television movie business because it was not financially beneficial to them and the networks had not yet owned their own product. So the only people that were making it were independents. And I found that fascinating, that you could be both a studio and a producer at the same time, that you would own your negatives, that you would be on the hook for making sure that the picture finished on time and it would be your money going into it. And you'd have to find, you'd get money from a network, but then you'd have to find the international money. And, and eventually we all use tax credits, most of us going to Canada. Um, when those came into fashion, and that's how you put the movie together. So we learned both how to package creatively, but also how to package financially. And then all of us, whether it was Len Hill or, or 
any of the famous television movie producers um, from that era, and we all were busy, we all were making three or four movies a year, um, primarily in Canada, but we all were on the hook for deficit. We all were taking all the risk, and then we could own it. You know, nobody in the series business was owning their, their shows. Those are all owned by studios, and obviously very few in the independent feature business. So the only real business during the 70s, 80s, and 90s where you could own your, a library, where you could amass a library, and I have 42 titles in my library, um, could come in the television movie business. There was actually an article that Peter Guber wrote and I think it was for like the Harvard Review. It's not like I'm reading that all the time, yes. but I just happened to see that in researching for this um, interview. And it was about how Fidel Castro sort of finessed. You, you know what story I'm referring to. Oh, I, I was on that show. Okay, yes, and, and uh, Ocean Quest Ocean or Quest, something? yes. I was the production executive, yeah. And, and what I found interesting was he talked about it's not just the story for your movie, but it's also the story that you tell other people that are either on your crew or having been denied by the film office there he was able to tell a story to Fidel Castro, have the cameras ready. Maybe I'll let you finish, I'm sorry. Well, that, well <laughs> I, I can tell the, the, the story of Fidel Castro and Ocean Quest from my side, from the seat, from the, from Doc's side where I was, because I was back in Los Angeles. So Peter sold a six hour miniseries, documentary series to Brandon Tartikoff, may you rest in peace. Uh, called Ocean Quest, which basically was take this beautiful woman who was Miss Universe, Sean Weatherly, put her with America's answers to Jacques Cousteau, and take them to the great dive spots all over the world, and do it for a year, and and then when it was done, cut six episodes, and so we had six one hours that went on consecutive Sundays against Murder She Wrote, and uh, it was it was sort of a big NBC event, uh, and we went non sweeps. So one of the things that Peter wanted to do, and by the way, he sold it because he owned a 110-foot pleasure sailboat and he wanted to figure out a way to write off his boat. So if, he, if the boat was on the show, then he could use it as a tax write-off. So, and then he, he handed it to me because I was his head of television and said, you go do it. And so uh, we were based out of Al Giddings, who was America's Jacques Cousteau and had shot like the deep and Jaws and all the underwater stuff. And so he had a big production facility in, in Berkeley in Oakland, and so that's where we were based, and I would fly up and back during the week, and this was during the, the post. But when we were in production, um, I was just responsible for making sure that you know the network got what they wanted, and we had, you know, we had big outlines, and then I introduced the production staff to the network, and the network to the production staff, and, and then if there was any dialogue that had to happen. And so uh, I get a phone call from the New York-based lawyers for the production company that was doing it, Centerpoint Productions, and they said, uh, we want to see the production schedule. Okay. So I sent them the production schedule, and we're on episode three, and Peter's boat with Sean and Al, the two stars, and the crew are, is motoring towards Cuba because Fidel Castro is an avid diver. The deepest point on the Atlantic is near Cuba, there was this giant trench that they wanted to send a, a rove down and they also wanted to dive near it with Fidel. Fidel was going to go in the water with Al and Sean. And as we get, it's motoring down in, towards international waters, I get a phone call from New York. When is this shot with Fidel Castro in Cuba? And I said, well, that's like in three days. Peter's on the boat now. And he said, turn him around. I said, what? no, I can't turn around. I'm, 
I'm like 24 years old. I go, I can't turn around. I'm like, no, I can't turn. First of all, there's not even any phones. Like, there's no cell phones. I'm like, he's in a boat. He goes, you have to. He says, as soon as he hits Cuban waters, uh, the American Coast Guard is going to seize his boat and arrest them all because you have no permission from the American government to do something commercial there. And we had this embargo that was pretty fierce. And he said, they will arrest him and they will impound his boat. I went, what? He goes, why didn't anybody ask us about this? I said, well, you've seen the production schedule. How was I supposed to know that that was illegal? So he says, find them. So I find, I call somebody in Marina Del Rey. They say, well, if they have a ship to shore, you can call somebody who will ship to shore a message to them, and then they can ship to shore a message back to you. And so I got a ship to shore message. I said, stop. They anchored where they were before they entered Fidel Castro. And I went to my boss's office. So that's the guy that runs the whole production company. And I said, Tom Tannenbaum, legendary television executive. Uh, son Eric Tannenbaum produced uh, Two and a Half Man, and just a sort of a, the Barrymore's of TV executives. And I said to Tom, we have a horrible problem. <laughs> this is what's happening. I've got him to stop, but what do we do now? And he said, I don't know. There's only one person in all of Hollywood who can fix this. He says, there's a lawyer, one lawyer, who could fix problems like this named Greg Boutzer. And Greg Boutzer is this, Wyman Boutzer is this legendary, he represented Universal Studios and when it became Universal Studios, he was in his 70s already. This was, you know, he was long since gone. And he says, sit down. And he puts on the speakerphone and he calls and he goes, he goes, Greg, yeah, what is it? He goes, it's Tom, I have this big problem. He explains the problem to him. Boutzer goes, all right, stay by your phone. You're gonna get a phone call in the next half hour from Al Haig. Al Haig at the time was the Secretary of Defense. He goes, Tom goes, uh, okay. We wait, wait, wait. Sure enough, ring, ring, ring. Mr. Tannenbaum, yes, Al Haig, <laughs> Secretary of Defense. We went, yes. He goes, what's the happening? He tells him, he goes, okay, normally this would take a month to get through the, the Commerce Department. I will get this done in 24 hours. Tell him not to leave, but in 24 hours, I will get you the piece of paper he needs to get into Cuba, the waiver. Sure enough, 24 hours later, he came, and Peter motors away to meet with Fidel Castro. So that's, I'm sure that was not in the Harvard Review. That's my side of the story. <laughs> the, the one in the, wow, that is quite a story. And, and the one that was in the Harvard Review, and I, I didn't read the full thing, I skimmed it. I think he said that they positioned the cameras and Ms. Weatherly in her swimsuit to just yes. show sort of this, they were ready to shoot. And then he presented his side of the story and, and that the film office had denied and it seemed like it was because they weren't really able to tell their story of what they wanted to do. It was like this, these forms. Mm -hmm. And so he just was talking about sort of the four noble truths of storytelling and how yes. it can, it doesn't just translate to the actual screen as a screenwriter, but in terms of how you get people to work with the production. Yes. And then Fidel Castro, a lover of the ocean, kind of said, you know, this belongs to everyone. Go ahead. And okay. Yes. <laughs> so that's the more finesse version of it. Interesting. Yes. All right. I think I like your version better. <laughs> Thinking back to when you worked in the mailroom, so you'd gone to AFI, mm -hmm. you worked in the mailroom. There's many people, similar spot, and they kind of look around and they say, how long has this person been here? Oh, yeah, I don't want to end up like that. I, I want to be directing and producing. That's a common thing. I think mm -hmm. it's a common trait of youth. We think I'm not gonna be that person. 40 years old over there, working there a long time. How does someone then get out of that? Because I'm sure that many of those people in those positions, they plan the same thing, but then life happens, kids happen, mortgages happen, 
And you can't just say, well, I'm going to run off and produce this when you have a family to support responsibilities. So how common is that idea of, well, I'm, it's going to be different for me. I'm going to come here fresh out of film school or wherever. I'm not going to be that guy over there in that department. I'm going to make changes. Uh I think for everyone that has a dream of being in show business, there's that moment where you start at the very bottom, at the whatever that entry level is, and it's different for, for everyone, but uh, a lot of us started in a mailroom. Um, and for me, I was having breakfast with my grandfather, who uh, was a very important role model in my life, the Friday before the Monday I had my first day in the mailroom. And uh, he said to me, what are you gonna do to get noticed? I said. I don't know, I'll do a good job. He goes, well, I'm sure everyone in the mailroom wants to do a good job. What are you going to do to be noticed? I said, I don't know. And he goes, what do you plan on wearing? I said, I don't know. T-shirt, pants, nice pants, maybe a collared shirt. He goes, no, you're going to wear a jacket and tie. I said, in a mailroom? He said, you wear a jacket and tie. Whoever you're delivering mail to is going to look up and go, who's this kid? And uh, I got there Monday. Everybody was in like torn Metallica or, you know, rock and roll shirts and cut off jeans. And I was there and they, they, they did not look kindly on me. <laughs> Who's this kid from film school with the shirt and tie on? Uh, and uh, the first day I was delivering mail to this producer, Rick Rosner, who had done Chips and was doing for this company, Filmways, was doing a show called 240 Robert, which was Chips in Malibu, um, starring, starring John Bennett Perry, Matthew Perry's dad. And, uh, he looks at me, he goes, who are you? And I said, this is who I was. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm delivering your mail. And he goes, where are you from? And I said, I just graduated from film school. He goes, give me two weeks and you're gonna work for me. Two weeks later, he lived up to his and uh, I became his assistant. So I, no, no change in pay, but I no longer was delivering mail. I only delivered mail for about two weeks. And I was his assistant and would go around to the set and go to production meetings and that led me to the next job, which was as a answering phones for a casting director who was doing Rocky Three and a bunch of series for ABC. And then that job led me to meet someone at ABC who said, you need to get out of the uh, blue collar side of our business below the line and you need to get above the line. So I'm gonna find you a job as a reader. And so a year later, I got a job as a reader and that started my development career. Do you think that's still possible today? I think what I teach at my class at AFI, and I have young students, you know, in their 20s and 30s who have the same dream that I had when I was sitting at AFI. And I think that part of that helps is that I, was, I sat in the chair that they sat in. And I really believe that um, you make your own good luck. Uh, passion is really important. Uh, hard work is really important. Respecting the people on your way up is really important. Um, but yes, I absolutely believe that dreams can still come true. My, I've had quite a few of my students that have had very successful careers as producers, some as screenwriters. Um, so yeah, I don't 100% believe that there is still the chance. When I graduated from AFI, the barrier to entry was financial. You couldn't just set up shop and make a movie. You couldn't set up shop and make a short film. You had to have a 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter camera. You had to have it developed by Kodak. You had to rent super equipment, lights and sound and nagras and everything was expensive. So nobody was making something on their own. Now, my sons run a digital content company called At Phony Text, which is on Snapchat, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Um, 
They have 150, 175 million views on YouTube, and they've only been doing this eight months. Wow. They have no barrier to entry. They make, write, produce, direct all of their own content, and they do it all themselves in-house. So they have the advantage of making their dream come true. They're storytellers just like I was, only they're skipping the mailroom and the, because they can do it with a phone. I didn't have that luxury. So I do believe if, you know, Peter Guber told me that uh, the currency to our industry is good stories. That if you have one, someone is going to find it. When Barry Morrow pitched me a story of uh, two brothers, one who was mentally challenged and got inherited all the money from his father when he died, and the brother that didn't get the money deciding to kidnap him, he was a TV movie writer and I was a TV movie producer. And he told it to me and I knew it was a feature. And we walked across the hall to Roger Birnbaum, who was running Goober Peters Features, while I was running Goober Peters Television. But we all knew it was a great story. I mean, at the time, we thought we were going to make it as a little tiny movie for Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers passed. It ended up at UA. And, of course, it also ended up with Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise, and it became Rain Man. But, you know, it was a good story. And it didn't, it didn't come from a highfalutin very successful screenwriter. It came from a television movie writer and didn't come from a feature executive. I was a TV movie executive. So it, yeah, dreams come true. You started taking classes at AFI after Brandeis? Yeah. You, you went to med school, you no, said, or you tried to- I flunked to... out of ah, pre-med you flunked, immediately. Okay. I went straight from Brandeis to AFI. I graduated Brandeis in May and I started in, at Greystone Mansion, which was a really fun place to go to school, which AFI isn't there anymore, but uh, the Doheny Mansion, Beverly Hills, and I started there in September. And uh, I produced a film with a second-year director and and then had this vision I would get out and become a producer immediately and sent out the film that we had shot on three-quarter-inch tapes to about, I don't know, 200 people and got two meetings. And neither one of those got me a job. One of them uh, was with Mike Medavoy, who at the time was head of Orion Pictures, and I thought I got this amazing opportunity, and it was because he happened to know the chairman of the board of Brandeis, so he was doing it kind of as a favor, unbeknownst to me, to someone else. And when I got in, he said, uh, pitch me something. And bring, uh, if I had never discussed pitching, and the entire time I was at the American Film Institute, we had not discussed it. So, I don't know, 10 years later, I ran into Gene Furstenberg, who was then running the American Film Institute, and she said, uh, so how did your AFI education go for you? I said, it was great, except you got to tell these kids how to pitch. And she said, well, why don't you teach that? Started by teaching a couple of weekend seminars, and then they sent me around the country, and I taught the same seminar in about 10 different cities. And then eventually they put me on as an adjunct professor, and I've been teaching that course for about 22 years. Once it's a week? A, once a week, I teach a course on pitching and developing for television, and uh no student graduates AFI now without knowing how to pitch. So what did they implement into the curriculum aside from that? I mean, now because, you know, film stock's no longer needed, really. I mean, it still looks beautiful, but it, DSLRs and, and all these other cameras are here. Well, AFI's curriculum has changed very little other than probably for the cinematography fellows. Um, you know, when I was there, it was just cinematographers, directors, writers, and producers. Now there's an editor. Uh, fellowship and there's a production design fellowship. Those are all since I was there. But the focus at AFI has always been learn by doing and the story comes first. So we're all storytellers. We're all teaching storytelling. When I teach pitching, it's all about concept, character, and plot. 
Um, so I don't think it's changed dramatically. The medium by which you deliver the story to the audience can change from 70 millimeter down to digital bits that are coming across YouTube. But in the end, if you don't have a good story to tell, it doesn't matter how gorgeous your film is or how many Academy Award winning actors you have in it. If you don't have a good story to tell, it's not going to work. You know, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. And uh, so we still teach how do you tell a good story? How do you move an audience? How do you make them laugh, them cry, them feel something, be scared? How do you do that? How do you do that with the medium of film and, uh, and now with the medium of digital? What do you think AFI offers that other colleges don't offer? I think because AFI's mission statement is learn by doing and because so much of the faculty is like myself, we're like paratrooper professors. We parachute in, we teach a class, we come from work, we talk about what's happening right now in the business, we bring with us guests that are working right now, and then we go back to our work. And so I think the advantage of having those kinds of professors, not someone retired who did it five years, 10 or 15 or 25 years ago, um, not someone who always wanted to teach but never had success in the business, but by having former fellows and, and people who admire the American Film Institute who are still working, who come to the, the campus over there at Franklin and Western and teach what they're doing and then the students go out and take those fundamental ideas and then go do it the next day in their cycle films and then thesis films, I think makes AFI different than everybody else and better. What do you think the advantages are of taking courses there or, or any college really versus learning online, whether it's a masterclass of some sort or, or even just watching other YouTubers? I think there is great value in doing around other people who have the same interests and desires that you have and having a working faculty that can critique it on the fly. So you can do it online, but nobody's watching that, nobody's staying next to you, and you're not having, you know, again, movies are made by a village. So if you're not standing with a screenwriter and fighting with him over the scene, if you're not standing with the DP and fighting over the lighting, and if you're not standing with the editor in the editing room and fighting over a cut and when to go to the master and when to, how long to stay in the close-up, you're not learning what it takes to forge a film because that conflict is what makes great filmmaking. If it goes perfectly and everybody gets along and everybody just does what they're supposed to do, the movie will suck. You need that conflict. You need it. The movies are forged in that place where everyone's doing their job, but their job might necessarily be your job. And so the director has a job to do, which is to make great art and to tell his story. The producer has a job to tell that story, but deliver it to someone who's paying for it and get them what they want while still allowing the filmmaker to do what they want. And the editor wants to bring what they have to the table and the screenwriter what they have to the table. And in that collective hurricane is where great movies are made, great television is made. And so you, I think you have to be in that. Not to mention that a, a rising tide lifts all boats. If you have a classmate who succeeds early, you know, two or three years out and brings you along, that's, you know, a really important thing that you don't get if you're going to a seminar or you're doing it online. And AFI fellows tend to help each other. 
Stan, do you watch your work? Do you go and watch mm -hmm. reruns or? I watch my work while I'm doing it. Uh, I'm incredibly involved, especially in the post-production. Um, I try not to do much on set as a producer. Obviously, as a director, I'm running the set. But when, when I get to post, uh, if I'm the producer, I like to do everything. I like to be the person who locks the cut. I like to be there in the scoring session, work with the composer, do all the visual effects, sit in the editing room, do the color correct, be there for the mix, do there for the final mix. All of that I like. I love that part of it. I was a musician in high school. I like the music. I like the whole... Because I think there's three parts to making movies that people forget. And my competitors in the television movie business, I think didn't follow this. And I think that's one of the reasons there's an Emmy on my shelf and, and not on other shelves, is that there's three very distinct parts of making a movie. The first part is the script. And that script is written to get somebody to give you the money. That's its job. The job of that script is how do we get to make the movie? The script isn't, here's the plan for the film. Here's what it should look like. Here's what it should be. That job of that piece of pay, those 120 pages, is to get someone to say, you're greenlit, go make the movie. Now you have, with the money, now you have a second period, which is the production period, which is, let's make the movie. Now, whatever's in that script may not necessarily, you may get a piece of casting that comes in that, you know what, they're better than what was there, we're gonna change that. Or we go to the location and that location doesn't exist. You may want a house that overlooks the water, but you know, on this budget, I can't afford a house that overlooks the budget, so overlooks the water, so we're gonna find another house. That's where you take what was in the script, and now you have a production script. Now you have a production plan. And now you're making the best movie you can from that part of the creative process. It's no longer the script. It's now the production script. And now you finish. Now you get to the editing room. Most of the people in the television movie business that I've worked with will use the script and put the film together the way the script unfolded. And if there's a star, that's the star of the film. And if there's a plan for flashbacks or voiceover, that's the plan. And you put the film together like that and you give it to the network. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that now you're wrapped. Now you go into the editing room and say, okay, what's the best movie I can make from what we shot? Not from what we wrote, from what we shot. There's gonna be, and it happens on every film, there's gonna be performances where you go, wow, I didn't expect that. That character actor in these five scenes steals the scene from the star. So don't cut the scene staying on the star. Cut the scene staying on that, because that's who you wanna watch. That's who lights up the screen. I've discovered actors that have gone on to big careers. They're not always in the, in the lead role, but you'd be a fool not to have the camera on them, even on reaction shots. The same with, with, with music. There may be a call for a certain kind of music in a scene, you play it and go, that doesn't work. There may be a call for a visual effect, and you go, that doesn't work. So now what you gotta do is structure the film. I've had films that start in scene 25 and then flash back to start at the beginning. So you see something that's gonna happen, you don't know what it means, and you don't know where that's gonna take you, and then at some point in the film, you catch up to that scene. And I put the film together and go, that doesn't work. I don't want to see that at the beginning. It gives it away, plus the fact I'm bored. I don't know what that means. So we lop it off and we start the movie where it's supposed to start. Because that's, the film tells you what it's supposed to be. The performances tell you what the movie's supposed to be. You need to, to move it around. There are puzzle pieces sometimes. And so that third part, which is how you make the movie in post, I think is part of why 
my films in the television movie business have been more successful, higher rated, better reviewed than most of my competitors. And uh, you know that was why uh, my company was called Once Upon a Time. Is I was a storyteller. I was going to be a storyteller from the first day we start on the script for the last day we deliver it to the network. So this movie tells you what it's supposed to be in the edit bay, and then you work within that. It's yeah. not that script, the initial script. You don't stay Correct. too sort of like married to that one script. Correct. Interesting. Okay. And di sometimes directors on a television movie, because that's what they directed, can't let go of that structure or those performances or that pacing. And so it's my job as the producer to be able to separate myself and say, okay, I have this much footage. What's the best movie I can make? It's, you know, I have all these different pieces of clay. What's the best sculpture I can make? I'm not going to leave them as blocks. I'm going to mold it into something that's perfect or as perfect as can be from what I'm given. I'm not given what was in the script. We had hoped that that actor was going to be the star. Well, as it turns out, the other guy in the movie is a better performer. So I'm going to want to lean the movie that way. I'm not going to just for pride's sake, because I cast this guy as the lead and this woman as the co-lead, stay on this side. I let the movie tell me what it should be. I let the movie tell me how it should be cut, how it should be scored, how it should be mixed, how it should be color corrected. It tells you. If you pay attention, it tells you. As long as you can let go, this is the back to the coloring outside the lines question, as long as you can let go of what you wrote and what you thought you were going to shoot, you know, the happy accidents. You Stuff happens on set all the time, but those happy accidents aren't probably in the script. Those are things. When I directed Perfect Sisters with Georgie Henley and Abigail Breslin and Mira Sorvino, the best image in the entire film was not in the script. I showed up on set and Georgie was sitting in a classroom by herself and it was, and it was, they were these green desks, elementary school desks, and they were all in rows like a Kubrick movie. I mean, the geometry of the shot was amazing. And we were waiting for all of the other kids to come in because it was a classroom scene. And Georgie was sitting in the middle seat by herself and I remember looking at her and thinking, that's the shot where she decides she's going to kill her mother. I don't have that in my script. I don't have that in my storyboard. I don't have that in my production plan. And I said to the director, shoot that. And I said to Georgie, just look down and then look up. And that's probably the most powerful moment in the film. It was not in the production plan, was not in the script. And it spoke to me. It just, all of a sudden, she was there. The 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 symmetry of the room, everything just said, we have to shoot that. Have you ever put uh, footage on the editing timeline with, with your editor and whoever else in the room and watch the whole thing through and just sink down and go, we can't use any of this? And then, <laughs> for, I mean, you don't have to say which, which production, but and then over time, shaping it, doing, you know, maybe a couple new reshoots it actually turned into something beautiful. Well, uh, it's interesting. As a producer, a lesson I learned, and it was maybe the hardest lesson to learn as a filmmaker, it was pretty much the hardest lesson I've ever learned, is that the hope you have for what the movie will be is never there when you look at the editor's assembly. The editor's assembly, first of all, is the editor's idea of how it should come together. And there's no score or they stuck in some, you know, temp. There's no sound effects. There's no ADR. 
None of what you do in that third process has happened yet. And yet I always forgot. And I finally taught myself, don't be depressed when you see the editor's assembly. It's not going to be that bad. As bad as it feels now, the movie that you thought you were going to make, you can still get there. But this isn't. And, uh, and I learned. I learned quickly, probably after five or six films, let that depression go. Don't walk in with the expectation this is going to be good. Walk in with the expectation it's not. And then I forgot it all when I became a director. And the first cut of the first movie I directed, I sobbed. I said to the editor, that's, thank you so much. I walked in my car and I cried for an hour. I said, I am not a director. I did such a terrible, that is such a terrible movie. I, if I could throw it all out, I could throw it all out and start again. And then I had to call my friend Jeff Loeb, who was the best storyteller I know. Um, and he said, you've been through this before. You've done this. You've made 70 movies. Stop. You remembered as a producer, now remembered as a director. It's just more personal now. And eventually we worked with it and worked with it and worked with it. And then I got the movie I wanted. But yeah, that was the hardest. And I still, even when I just directed an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And still when I see the assembly, it's like, uh. And then you get there. Many of your projects have been in the true crime genre. What attracts you to this? Well, I think my original attraction to true crime was it was going to pay the bills because uh, it was the appetite, it was the, the meal that the television networks wanted for a long time, I would say half to maybe more than half of what was on CBS or NBC was true crime. And then when Lifetime became the preeminent supplier, they wanted true crime. So I think at the start, um, it was just that was the, the world I was in and that was I had to learn. And then eventually I realized that I could become a storyteller in that world and I didn't have to do it the way everyone else was doing it, which was kind of a straightforward police narrative that there were other ways to tell true crime. And uh, so I tried to find the emotional hook in a true crime movie. And so I would make stories that weren't as much about the crime, but as much about the effect it had on the people who either were the victims or were the police or were the criminals? And how did their lives change? And what were the emotions they were going through? And, um, you know, we did capture the Green River Killer, which Tom Cavanaugh was nominated for awards, and we won the DGC Award for Outstanding Miniseries. And that movie is about a man's crisis of conscience, of giving up on God, because for 25 years, he would constantly be finding these murdered young women in between 15 and 25 in Seattle and he couldn't find this guy and for 25 years he chased this guy and uh, he was a deeply devoted Christian and at one point he just turned to God and said you can't possibly exist if this is what you are allowing to happen and you aren't letting me fix it. I was put here to find this guy and arrest him and stop these women from dying and that's my calling and I'm not doing my job. So where are you? So we made a movie about that, a miniseries about that. And I still to this day, I think it's the highest rated miniseries in, on LMN and we won all kinds of awards. And, and, uh, and the, the person who wrote it wrote Agnes of God. So it, that was right in his wheelhouse. And I chose him because we wanted to explore that as opposed to what was the crime? How did the girls die? How were they killed? How did they find him? What, was the, what were the clues? It wasn't a detective story. It was an emotional story. How do you find these stories? 
I'm sure you, you scour the news and you look at what's on Goodreads or different things, but what is it that calls to you about a certain story? The thing that people have to remember about all genres is in the end, do you care and is it a good story? It doesn't matter if it's a romantic comedy or a true crime or a Western, all of which I've done. You still want to find, does it pull at your heartstrings? Does it make you feel something? Does it make you feel angry? Does it make you feel sad? Does it communicate to you a personal experience? Do you feel for the characters? Do you root for the protagonist? Do you root against the antagonist? Those are all the things that have to happen in a story. Uh, I remember a couple of screenwriters early on would say to me when I started in the true crime business, well, this is what really happened. I said, that doesn't matter. What really happened is almost irrelevant. If it's not a good story, if what really happened is the excuse we have for not being good storytellers, then we need to get another job. It really happened is not the answer to a story flaw, to not being able to have a second act twist, to not being able to have a satisfying third act. Those things still have to happen even when you're in true crime. So of course, when I could find a great book, as I did with Capture Green River Killer, or establish a relationship with a great crime writer like Anne Rule, who was probably the greatest crime writer of all time, may she rest in peace, uh, I would say that also helped because, for instance, Anne, I made three of her movies, she had a nose for telling a story like nobody I knew. And, uh, and she, again, wasn't just interested in the crime. She was interested in the characters around the crime. And that some of that came from her own story, right? That sort of put her on the map? Well, Anne Rule's story is amazing. I mean, Anne Rule was, uh, she was a crime reporter, a crime journalist. She, her brother was a cop, her dad was a cop. I think her grandfather was a cop and her uncles were cops. So she grew up in that world. Um, she knew she wasn't gonna be a cop, so she decided to be a crime journalist. And uh, I think she wrote under a pseudonym because women didn't do that then. And, uh, and I think when she wrote her first book, she wrote it under a pseudonym. And uh, she was living in Seattle and she was volunteering at a uh, suicide hotline. And the guy sitting next to her was a very attractive guy from the University of Washington, was also volunteering. And they would show up on the same night every week and talk. They became friends and they would go out for coffee afterwards and you know, kind of decompress from what I'm sure was not a fun night. And they became friends. And then one day she turns on a TV and he's been arrested and it's Ted Bundy. And so she had access to him. She talked to him after he was arrested. And she wrote The Deliberate Stranger, I think was the name of the book. And that put Anne Rule on the map. And I think that's the first time, I could be wrong, but it was right around the first time she put her name, her own name, Anne Rule, on a book. And so she always drew from that. But I did, uh, I did a Rob Lowe movie with her. I did a Gina Gershon movie with her. And both times she was still, and these were books that had been around for 10 years at least, she was still in touch with the victim's families. So she called them when we were doing the movie and said, hey, we're making a movie and this is gonna play your mom or your dad or your brother or sister. And, uh, and then even when, we, when the movie came on, she called them after it aired. So yeah, she maintained those relationships. They were like her children. The books were like her children and the victim's families were like her children as well. Once you find a story that you want to then have some screenwriter adapt. What are your steps when it comes to the true crime genre? Well, with true crime, uh, obviously the first thing you have to do is break it down and come up with a, an outline and a treatment. So that's the first step with the screenwriter is what are the story beats? You know, uh, on a broad scale, what's the beginning, middle, and end? Um, what's the first act, second act, twist, and third act? Even if you're working in an eight-act structure for television movies, you're still in a three-act structure. So that's the first bit, is what story are we telling? 
Because with a lot of them, there's, you know, it could be a 10-year story or you could just tell a sliver of it. So you, you have to decide what's the story we want to tell. And once we decide, like, who, who are we rooting for, who are we rooting against, are we going to see the crimes, are we not going to see the crimes? A lot, of, a lot of kind of structural bones of the story you have to figure out first. That's a lot of conversations before you put pen to paper. And then you come up with a story outline and then treatment. And then uh, that has to get approved by whoever's paying for it, whether it's a network or a studio. And then you write a screenplay. And then, um, and, you know, the first draft is the writer's draft. And that's when he gets to do whatever he wants or she wants. Um, and then at, from that point forward, now it's, you know, it's, it takes a village. So now the network or studio gets their votes and I get my notes. And, you know, if we get it to an actor, the actor gets their notes. And so at that point, form, now you're in that place of how do we get this made? And so now you're adjusting that story and that screenplay. And then when you get ordered, there's a whole other process that you don't have in fiction, which is you now have to go to the errors and omissions lawyer and go through the script page by page, line by line, period by period, and make sure that what you're telling is true and you haven't defamed anyone. And so there's a lawyer that forces the screenwriter to annotate their script page by page. Every single thing in it has to be based on something. And if it's fiction, like if they say, okay, well, well there's a cop and we know that he was went home and figured it out at home, but there's no, we know that because the next day he went in and made an arrest, but we don't have any actual documentation that he went home and figured it out. But we're going to write a scene where he goes home and figures it out. And that's that's the connective tissue between when he doesn't catch the killer and he does catch the killer. Well, they'll allow a certain amount of that in your screenplay, uh, maybe 10%, 20%. Um, if the audience pays attention, they'll know how much is fiction because on a television movie, if it says based on a true story, it's almost completely true. There's very little fictionalization. If it says inspired by true events or inspired by a true story, that means the insurance company and the lawyers have said, you took too many liberties. We're still going to say true story, but we're not going to say based on. We're going to say inspired by. And uh, that allows you more leadway. Uh, I always tried to get to based on. I liked my movies to be as close to the truth as possible. Uh, Perfect Sisters was based on a true story. Uh, Capture the Green River Killer was based on a true story. Um, so I, I, I always fought to get as close to the based on moniker as possible, but it wasn't always the case. If there's a book out about the case, are you then going to the author to adapt it and get their rights? Or do you have to get the life story rights of the individual or the, the state of whomever is, is, is involved in the story? So the important thing to remember when you're doing true crime that's based on a book is if you're optioning the book and you don't have to, if you're optioning the book, the book doesn't come with any rights. So uh, if you're gonna do a story about, I did this movie, The Grim Sleeper for Lifetime, which I directed and produced. And it was based on the work of a journalist at the LA Weekly, a young woman who was a fact checker and figured out that there was a serial killer preying on African-American women in South Central Los Angeles. She figured it out. She wasn't even a journalist yet. She was a fact checker from Ottawa, Canada. And she put the pieces together and they let her write the piece and they eventually caught him because of her work. And she hadn't written a book. She had written a bunch of um, essays for LA Weekly. I didn't need anything except her. 
I didn't need the LA Weekly articles. I didn't need the LA Weekly. There was no book. Um, there have been stories in the LA Times. There have been stories in the LA Daily News. So I had plenty of source, but I needed her. So she was the rights I had to go get. So um, I skipped over all the writing about the Grim Sleeper, and I went right to the source, and I got her rights. That allowed me to depict her. It also allowed me to have her talk to the screenwriter and tell them the entire story, which is what she did. She, the screenwriter, Tina Booth, brilliant screenwriter, spent time with Christine Pelisek, who was the real woman, and she told her her story. So that's it's important because people think when they buy a book or they buy a magazine article, they buy a newspaper accounting of something, that they're getting something with that. All you're getting is the point of view of that author. Now that may be important. And if they're the sole source, then you do need it because you can't source it from anywhere else. But if it's a big story and it's been, it's been uh, recorded and reported elsewhere in like three or four or five sources, you don't need a book. You don't, you don't need a magazine article. You just need, but if you're going to depict somebody as your heroine or hero, you do need their rights because you can't really depict somebody unless they're super famous um, without their rights. You can do the Michael Jackson or Elvis story without rights, but you can't do the Christine Pelisek story without rights. I needed the, the sheriff, David Reichert, who was the sheriff in Seattle who broke the Green River Killer case. I needed his rights. What, what constitutes how famous someone is? Because, you know, you could have YouTubers, some of whom could be famous to a certain age group, and then older populations wouldn't, like well, what? Well, they'd have to be famous to a level where there has been so much coverage of them that the insurance company would feel like it's impossible to defame them because they have been in the public eye at such a high level. YouTubers would not qualify. Um, uh, you know, they have to be at the Elvis level. Or sure, okay. John F. Kennedy or Lana, somebody who's, whose whole life has been in the public eye and there's hundreds and hundreds of magazines and newspapers and documentaries, then you can get it. I mean, I think most of the Elvis and Michael Jackson movies and for television and miniseries for television were done without rights. Call Me, The Rise and Fall of Heidi Fleiss. You did a movie on Heidi Fleiss mm -hmm. back in, what year was that? 1990s? Two thousand. thousands, We all know what the story's about, but what about the story behind the story of getting some of the talent attacked? So uh, that's a great story. I had made a bunch of movies, true crime movies, for Jeff Wachtel, who was a friend, and he was at the time running the USA Network, which uh, didn't make a lot of television movies, but when they did, they generally did pretty well. And one of the things that Jeff told me is they would routinely in their staff meetings, come up with ideas for television movies, and they would make a poster of it, and they would go to like 10 malls in the Midwest, and they would put the posters up and have people come over, and all they would see is the title and some image, and they would say, which of these movies would you want to see most, and which would you like to see least, and rank them. And he said, one after another, every time we do this, the title that comes back the highest is the Heidi Fleiss story. But we don't have a handle on it. So he said, but you're such a good storyteller. Would you do the Heidi Fleiss story? And I said to him, if you're thinking cradle to grave, like how did she become Heidi Fleiss and what did she do and who were her clients? I'm not interested. He said, was there a story you're, you are interested in telling? I said, well, let me think about it. And I thought about it, I thought about it and then I woke up one morning and I was like on a run or something and then bingo, I thought of it and I called him back and I said, if you'll let me make uh, All About Eve in the world of high-priced 
call girls in Beverly Hills. Because the story, the true story is that Heidi stole the business from the legendary madam before her, who was Madam Alex, who had all the studios and all the producers and all of them. And Heidi was one of her girls. And then Heidi called the cops, had Madam Alex arrested for a 24 hour hold. And during that 24 hours, she stole every client. And by the time Madam Alex got out of prison, jail, county jail, I think Beverly Hills jail, Heidi had her business. And Heidi went from being a call girl to a madam. So I said, if you let me do All About Eve, because that's an interesting story, then I'm interested. And he goes, go ahead. And Brenda Fricker played Madam Alex and Jamie Lynn Siegler played. And that was pretty high-priced talent for him. I mean, Brenda Fricker was an Academy Award winner and Jamie Lynn Siegler was on The Sopranos at the time. And we thought, what better than a Jewish girl from Long Island playing a Jewish girl from Encino? And uh, it worked great. Shouldn't an executive producer know more about money than they should about storytelling? Well, an executive producer, if they're doing their job right, should know just as much about storytelling as they are about money because whoever giving them the money has an expectation of what story you're going to tell them. So there's a script that they've given you the money for. So it's now your job to deliver that at the price that they gave you. So yes, it's very important you know how to put financing together and know how to deal with banks and loans and tax credits and advances and all of that. On the other hand, the person who's giving you the money has an expectation that the director's gonna direct the movie that they bought and the actors are gonna act the movie that they bought. And so the only person that's gonna make sure that that train doesn't run off the tracks is the executive producer. So the line producer's real job is, what time is it and are we done? The line producer's job is just make sure, okay, I have this much money to spend on this day and that's what we're gonna spend. He doesn't have any creative responsibility, nor should he. It's the UPM and the line producer's job to get it done at the price. So it's the executive producer who has to kind of be the referee between the part that's pulling for money being saved and the part that's pulling for let's do the best movie possible. And that's the director's job is not to worry about the money. You don't want them to think about money. You want them to think about what's the best movie I can make. And you want your line producer to say, you can't do that because we can't afford it. And so someone has to referee and get the best movie possible for the price. So how do we get the very best movie, the very best art for the price tag that we've been given? That's the executive producer's job. So I don't think you need to know one or the other more. I think you actually need to know the more you can do both of those jobs, I think the easier it is to mediate. What's the most common question your students ask you? I think the most common question my students ask me is, who is the worst actor you've ever worked with? Um, but I think that my students' biggest question is, what do we do when we graduate? What's the world that's out there for them? And I think it's my job to give them the tools to be able to succeed, whether they get hired initially on the line producing side or on the executive producing side, or as a studio executive, a lot of my students go on to be development executives because they've learned how to hear a pitch and to pitch themselves. The thing about pitching is it's not just when you go to sell it to a studio or a network. You're gonna pitch an agent, you're gonna pitch a star, you're gonna pitch a cinematographer, you're gonna pitch an editor. Hey, I want you to come aboard this project. Let me tell you a story. So you're pitching all the time, no matter what part of the business you're in. So to not have that skill in your, to not have that arrow in your quiver is a, just a, I think a huge detraction to your 
career and it would be remiss upon us as filmmaking professors not to give you that. So the continuation of storytelling, not just within the confines of a 120 page script, but with someone to allow you to come in and pitch to them, mm -hmm. with someone that you're sending out the script to that's a potential investor. You know, everything is scary when you leave film school. It's all frightening. Will I succeed? Will I make it? Will I be the one that gets to live out the dream? And I think it's part of our responsibility as uh, experienced filmmakers and professors to try and calm some of those fears by telling them what it's going to be like, to give them realistic expectations, but also to give them enough tools that no matter what situation they get in, whether they're making the movie on their phone for 25000 or they get hired to do you know, a $25 million sequel to something, that they have those tools, and all of it comes back to storytelling. What about the definition of the dream? Do you think it's the same for most of the students? Do you think they're skewed by wanting their picture in variety, whereas people can be working in the industry, they have work all year long, maybe people don't know them as a household name, but they're still living out being creative, being on a set? I think the most disappointed you will be in our business if you live for the fame and the fortune. Um, I had to learn that lesson the hard way. Uh, Peter Cooper was helpful in teaching me that, that really the reason we do this is the process. If you don't enjoy the doing, if you don't enjoy every part of getting that script ordered into production and then going on a set and then sitting in an editing room or sitting on a mixing stage. That's the part. Um, I got depressed after I saw my first credit on screen. Um, I lied awake all night not understanding why I wasn't happier. And uh, took some therapy and a couple of conversations with Peter Gruber to figure out that that wasn't the be all end all seeing my name on the screen for the first time, which is what I thought it would be. It was the getting to do it to see my name on the screen. Um, which is also part of why I don't love watching my stuff again. I mean, I think it's the doing that I love, and then when it's over, it's over, and I'm on to the next. I wanna know what the next challenge is gonna be. I don't love watching stuff that's already been made because that was the process then, and I wanna find the new process. I wanna find the new road to get on. And do you think your sons saw you, that you instilled that in them somehow, whether it was just by them watching you because they have this successful channel and so many people set out to have a YouTube channel, they don't reach that level. I think that uh, my sons had the benefit of being around really good storytellers in their house. Whether it was me, whether it was their mother who also is in the business of telling stories at uh, Television Movie Network whether it be screenwriters that were friends of mine. I mean, the, their godfather runs Marvel Television, um, and they were blessed to hear him tell stories all the time. Um, and then we, you know, we made it a point to, you can't come home from school and just say, uh, it was a good day. You gotta tell me a story. So I think they were in, they were, you know, indoctrinated with storytelling at a young age, and I think they were blessed to have really good storytellers around them telling stories that they could hear it and soak it up like little sponges. And um, yeah, they went to really good schools that taught them how to be good storytellers as well. That definitely helped. Um, both of their colleges are great liberal arts colleges. I'm a big believer in not going to film school as an undergrad. I don't think you learn what you need 
an undergraduate film. I think if you want to take a graduate course, if you want to go and get an MA or MFA, that's great. And I think AFI and USC and NYU and UCLA are great, AFI the best. Um, but I don't think as an undergrad, that's what you should be doing. I think as an undergrad, you should be taking literature and architecture and art classes. I mean, I can tell you, I don't use my film school knowledge anywhere near as much as I use my undergraduate Brandeis degree. I, I will tell you that if, if I'm sitting with a composer, I'm not going to talk about frames per second. We're going to talk about Bach and Beethoven and talking heads. I mean, that's what a musician wants to talk about. Well, that's stuff I learned in college, not in film school. If I'm with a uh, set designer, what I learned in my one architecture class comes in handy. When I see with a screenwriter, you know, what I learned in English lit and history and social studies and politics, that all comes in handy. Not, you know, how much does it cost to put a light on a set and what is what are the fringes for a screenwriter? You know, that's important. And I, I love my AFI education. But if you're gonna be a good filmmaker and a good storyteller, you really do need a liberal arts education. Would you rather produce a movie or executive produce a movie? Well, in the television movie business, which I was in for 20 years, you really don't have a choice. You have to be both. You have to be the executive producer and the line producer. As executive producer, supplier, the person who's the studio, who the network is counting on for that film and who is at risk for deficit and who has put together the financing from international money and tax credits, you're responsible for the whole kit and caboodle So, and delivering what the person who's paying for it wants. So that's the executive producer side and the supplier side. But then on the other hand, you got you got to make sure there is no going over in television movies. So, uh, and probably in the independent feature business as well. You, if you've got a 17-day schedule or a 15-day schedule, you're finishing in 15 days. So that's the line producer side. Is is where do you spend the money? What I tend to find is the most enjoyable part of that is what does this movie call for? How do we move? You can't use a standard. Well, this is how much we normally spend on wardrobe. This is how much we normally spend on you know, hair and makeup. This is what we normally spend on picture cars. You know, some movies require more of one or the other. Some movie require lots of extras. Some movie requires no extras. So you want to make sure that you take the money available to you and put it on the screen. So we're always moving stuff around. We're moving it from, okay, we don't really need that many extras. So let's take that extra money and get more wardrobe. You know, the Heidi Fly story, which we talked about, was wall-to-wall -wall wardrobe. I mean, there was so much wardrobe and lingerie and all that, which is all very expensive. So I had to find that money somewhere. So where was I going to find the money? Was I going to have less locations? Was I going to have less extras? Was I going to have less crew on some days where I could figure out a way to get the crew down? What was the way I was going to be able to save that money? You also took a class at AFI from another producer, a gentleman who had been in the business for years. He was a producer. I thought I had read that. Okay, maybe not. When I was a student, we were taught the line producing business uh, from a working, just which is the same as it is now. So there was a working uh, UPM and a working AD, and it was a year-long class on line producing. The first semester, we would take a script, a real script uh, that this UPM had worked on at Paramount, in fact, and break it down. So we would break it down and do and put a board together. In those days, we actually used real strips. Now it's all done on movie magic. But we had real strips, and we would put day exterior, night exterior, day interior, night interior, inserts, visual effects, and put those strips onto a board. And then they, we would bring it into class, and he would look at our board after breaking down. And so that was the first semester. And then the second semester, we would take that board, 
with an AD who taught the second semester. And they were a UPM and AD that always worked together. And, and then we budgeted from that board. So by the time you finished your one year of the line producing class, you had broken a script down, boarded it, and budgeted it. And so by the time I graduated AFI, I could line produce pretty good. Has line producing and, and, and just executive producing everything changed? So going back to that time, are the, are the rules and the ways of finding money and, and, and cutting costs here and there pretty much the same or things slightly different? I think the costs have gone up and yet uh, efficiencies have gone way down. So, uh, you know, the, as I said, the barrier to entry is no longer money. So you couldn't really make a television movie for $100,000. There just was no way between equipment and guilds and whatever, and just the cost of doing it. You just couldn't do it. But now people make movies that get released as features for $100,000. So the, the economies are, are there because of digital primarily. I mean, film was really, raw stock was really expensive and developing was really expensive. And, you know, just being in an editing room where you'd have to put uh, clips up on a hook where instead of just having digital, you know, it used to be, and I cut on film for my first five television movies, I think, we cut on film. And you would say to the editor, well, let's try it with, you know, a close-up here, and let's try this scene with the, let's go back to the wide, and let's let's get rid of these two shots in this scene. And then he'd say, okay, disappear for two hours, or go get lunch, or go get dinner, or come back tomorrow. And that's what you do. And now you sit in an editing room on what used to be an Avid and now Final Cut Pro, and, and it's, okay, what do you think of that? And it's right there, right then, right that moment. So that's changed. What's the difference between being a Hollywood producer and an independent film producer? Well, I think a Hollywood producer has uh, more of a studio life. And studio life is very different than an independent life. Because studio life is, you have a deal at a studio and you bring them projects and it's either a first look or an exclusive deal and uh, agencies are feeding you material because they know that you have a straight shot to getting it financed because you're on a lot. And uh, so I think that's a Hollywood, it's a, a little bit of a throwback to the old days of the studio system. Um, you have the advantages of a you know a very muscular studio that's going to provide you with access to material and access to crews and sound stages and visual effect companies. And as an independent, you're putting it all together every time. It's Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Let's put on a show. And it's you start from the very beginning, and you got to find someone to pay for the script, and you got to find someone to pay for the movie, and every little piece of it has to be put together by you. You. It's a giant Lego box of Legos, and you have basically no instructions, and you've got to build, you know, a Hogwarts castle out of memory and uh, imagination. And so it's all, you know, the independent life is the, you know, traveling salesman. You, it's every single day you have to be doing it. There's no luxury. There's no sitting back. There's nothing coming to you. Um, I think the Hollywood studio producer has some luxuries and... You know, obviously, there's some disadvantages, which is there's probably a lot of stories you don't get to tell, um, especially nowadays. You know, if it's not a comic book or a sequel, I think you know the studio producer probably is at a disadvantage in some of the stories they get to tell. And if they're an exclusive deal and there's a story they want to tell and the studio they're at passes, they're kind of SOL. And so um, there's obviously pros and cons to being a Hollywood producer and being an independent producer. Was it Chris Christopherson? Freedom isn't free. 
don't know if that um, was his quote. But in the sense that the... Freedom is another word for nothing left to lose. Oh, I thought that was uh, Janis Joplin. No, that was Chris Christopherson, oh, okay. me and Bobby McGee, which Janis Joplin sang. Okay, all right. Okay. I made five movies with Chris. Oh, you so did? So you know, picked okay. the wrong guy for the quote. Sorry. Well, I know, I know his repertoire by heart. Luckily we cut. And he's a friend. Oh, nice. Okay. But my point with that was that even with with so-called yeah. freedom, it's, you know, that it comes yeah. at a cost. So, yeah. And then studio system, maybe not as much freedom. Yeah, but but then I think it's the single song. best lyric written in an American song in the last fifty years. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah, the Janis Joplin story is fascinating too. Yeah, yeah. you never want to do something on her. I find the bio movies are really hard to do. Really, I think they're better served in documentaries, and the people that do them well, I found them difficult. I I prefer because do you go rag? Do you know cradle to grave? Do you Pick a slice of life. You, right. You know. That's true. And again, I am not. I don't believe because it happened makes it a good story. There are people that have great lives that belong in documentaries that don't belong in. I mean, look, I get pitched every week, if not every day, somebody mm. saying, "I have an amazing story to tell you," and they tell me a story of someone they knew or someone they read about, and it is a probably a good sixty minutes piece or maybe even sure. a good documentary for Netflix, but it's not a movie because a movie is different than a documentary. How active are you in pursuit for your next story on a daily basis? I'm always open to whatever the next story is going to be. Um, now that I've transitioned from being a producer to a writer-director, um, now I'm much more picky and I'm not open to just what will sell or what I think the marketplace needs. Now I'm looking for just something that really moves me and I feel will be something I want to dive deeply into for a long period of time. As a producer, I could skim along the surface. Um, I never had to dive in that deep, but as a writer or director or both, it's a deep dive. And uh, I have to be willing to commit to that and feel that I can bring something to it and I'm going to enjoy those characters. I, I will say that one of the great joys I've learned late in my career as a writer is that moment when you're sitting in front of that black screen and the characters start to speak for themselves and they come alive on your page. And that's, you know, I didn't get to do that as a producer. Uh, and so I'm really enjoying that part of it. So um, I'm always open. Uh, I find, you know, stories can come from anywhere. Um, so I'm always open, but now I'm much pickier. You know, when I was running my own little studio at Once Upon a Time Films, when we were making three or four television movies a year, I had to find lots of material. If we were running a three to one development to film ratio, I had to have you know, nine scripts ready to go for every three movies I got made. So that meant if I had to have nine scripts ready to go, I had to have 20 ideas ready to get scripted or 30. So it was, we were always looking for stories. I'm much less interested now in that kind of volume. Now I want to find something that has a wow factor. Does that wow factor come to you right away or will it kind of fester late at night? You'll like, be up and you're like, you know what? Actually, I do like this story. I wasn't sure at first, but then it kind of like festers in your mind a little. I think there's, I think they're both. There's, there's certainly the wow factor of that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And I have to have that. I have to have that right now. How do I get that story? How do I get that book or magazine or true life story? Um, when I, when I heard the story of Christine Pelisek being a, 
a fact checker at 23 years old and working at LA Weekly and breaking the grim sleeper uh, serial killer in Los Angeles. I, I didn't need to know anymore. But then there's stories that will I just can't let go of. I'll go back to and go back to them. But there was the, the hopefully the next movie I'm going to make uh, in the Amazon was a story that I chased for five years. And uh, it was a true life story and I just couldn't let it go. And uh, some other producer got it and uh, failed at developing it. And I would call every six months and after about a year and a half, they abandoned the other producer and went with me. And uh, it really, I just could not let it go. It was a story I had to tell. One way or the other, I was going to tell that story. Sorry, Stan, is that your next project that you're referring to? I believe my next film will be uh, the Girl Who Fell From the Sky, and that's the true story of Julianne Kepke, who in 1972 was living in Peru, going to the American school. She was 18, uh, was in her senior year. Her parents were noted zoologists. She had lived part of her childhood in the Amazon. Her parents were cataloging butterflies and bats. And then when she got to middle school, they moved her to Lima, and she grew up there, spoke perfect German, perfect English, perfect Spanish. And uh, because it was, uh, they're on a different schedule than us, because their seasons are different than us, uh, their school year ends in December. So she was both graduating and going to her prom in December, and uh, her dad wanted them to go to the Amazon uh, on Christmas Eve, and she wanted to stay. And so he went early, and she and her mom stayed behind in Lima, and she went to her prom, graduated with her friends, and then they got on a plane. And when the plane was over the Amazon, it was hit by lightning twice and disintegrated in midair. And she was in the window seat, still strapped in. And as she said, the, I didn't leave the plane, the plane left me. And she found herself uh, at 15,000 feet uh, in her chair, upside down, pinwheeling. And uh, she fell, blacked out, fell, hit the canopy of the Amazon, which broke her fall. It's a miracle, it's absolutely. She's the, it's the longest free fall without a parachute. And the canopy broke her fall, and she uh, landed in the Amazon, woke up, had nothing but a broken collarbone that she knew of. She had one shoe, lost her glasses, and for the next nine days, followed the river and the lessons that she learned from her father and her own desire not to die, and was rescued. And uh, she's a friend of mine now. She's now in her 50s, and she's an extraordinary woman. She spends half her year in Munich and the other half in the Amazon just trying to save the rainforest. And uh, we're going to go down to Bogota and, uh, and, and the Amazon and uh, hopefully tell that story at the beginning of next year. Wow. Are you able to break down a script in terms of when a script is submitted to you for you to consider? What are you looking at? How are you sort of dissecting it to see if it'll work? I try and read a script that's sent to me uh, as an audience first. Uh, so the first thing I'm looking at is, does it grab me? Do I care? Uh, is it a story that can, I feel emotional about, compelled by? You know, if it's a scary movie, am I scared? If it's a comedy, have I laughed? If it's emotional, have I, you know, gotten a lump in my throat? Um, I find that if I'm looking at it and dissecting it right from the start, I'm, uh, I'm not doing myself any favors and I'm not doing the script any favors. If I get to, I don't know, at some point and it hasn't done any of those things, I usually don't finish it. Uh, 
Um, but if I get to the end and I have felt those things, then I'll go back and do a second read as with my producer hat on, which is, is this affordable? Can we do this? Will there be a part in it for a star? Which is, you know, things that, things that are too ensemble are difficult to get made because you need a star role to get things ordered usually. So, you know, I'm looking, I have, then I took my other hat on. And then, then the producer hat goes, okay, what, where would I shoot this? How much is it gonna cost? Is there a star role? Where would, was there a network or studio that would buy this? Cause you don't wanna obviously chase something that there's no place to sell. And so then that's the second read. What are some things in a script that sort of stick out as red flags, whether it's too many locations or even just the way the script is written? Too much space on the page, too little? Well, you can immediately tell when a script has not been written by a professional, and obviously that, that's a big red flag. So if the script has like art on the title page or colored paper or is not in final draft form, um, you know, too much too much of a header or too much on the sides and you know, okay, this person is either trying to get something to be shorter or longer by using the margins, which that's not playing fair. So, uh, so those are, but I would say red flags are things like, you know, not introducing your protagonist in the first 10 pages, not, you know, announcing what your film is, you know, in the first 15 pages. Um, you know, don't, don't wait until halfway through to tell me, oh, this movie's about this guy who wants to kill his mom. Okay, well, I'm not sitting here for an hour waiting for you to tell me that. So, um, uh, so I'm, I'm looking for the, the kind of structural and character problems um, that are pretty easy to spot. Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in the Robert McKee world of inciting incident and all of that, but there's value in what he has to say sort of philosophically, which is that there are some kind of foundational things you need to do in a screenplay that you, I don't, you know, unless you're doing experimental movies, which I'm not in that business. Uh, if you have a story to tell, there are certain, you know, parts of the roadmap you gotta hit. And um, so if, you know, you hold back your protagonist until page 30, and that's just, not going to happen. There's no. You're not acting a movie. Asking a movie star to show up a half hour into the movie. So, th those are the kinds of things I look for. When you say you read it as an audience member first, does that mean you're not even reading it? Let's say at your desk on a computer. You're trying to see it as in more of a reclining position, just more comfortable. Or no, it just it, in your mindset. I am sadly very old school. I'm the get off your lawn guy. So I <laughs> force my uh, my development executive, Gia, to print everything. I don't like to read anything on my computer or on my iPad. I like to have the script in my hand. Uh, I like to have tangible. I want to be able to write things on it when, um, when I'm reading it, uh, especially if I'm going to read it a second time as a producer. There's going to be things I'm going to note as I'm reading. And uh, so I, I like to have a, a finished script. So... And I'll read it on a plane, I'll read it bad, I'll read it on, out in the backyard. Um, I don't care where, where it is, but uh, I, I really like plain reading because nobody can bother me. I, do, I don't like to read a script in fits and starts. I prefer to just read it straight through. And it's hard to do that here in my office. I really can't. And it's not so easy at home either. There's a great, I mean, I find 
plane travel to be an, a luxury because there's no one calling me, nobody finding me, nobody tapping me on the shoulder, no emails, no nothing. So I do a lot of good reading on planes. Oh, that's really interesting. Hopefully your, your plane mate that's sitting next to you isn't, isn't looking to talk about sports or something. Yeah. <laughs> but that's I it. Can I have can have on. There you go. The right. That's the do not universal do not disturb <laughs> sign. Exactly. But that, that I can relate to that. Or a book. It's it's a much different experience. I don't like to read a book on an iPad. My my right. wife has a Kindle. My son has a Kindle. I'm not a Kindle person. I like to have a book. Sure. There there's a different experience to holding yeah. that in your hand. And I'm sure even with paper as maybe non recycling friendly. I, I'm I, I have the LA Times delivered to my house. I don't like to read the newspaper online. I'd much rather have, you know. I like flipping back and forth. I like having the access to. I'm reading the sports section to go back to the standings and find out what place the Dodgers are in when I'm reading the article on the Dodgers. If I'm doing that online, I got to click back and click back, and it's it's way less. I like the tangible feeling of moving through a paper. I I, I would miss that. Well, it's similar to wanting to see a film with an audience. Oh, 100%. instead of on your phone yes. or or yes. a laptop, it's yes. it's not the same. A hundred percent. Right. The shared experience of watching a movie is completely unique. One of the things I love about uh, being a director is I get to experience the film more than I do as a producer. And as a television movie producer, it was the worst because we'd finish our movie, we'd turn it over to the network, it would go out and we'd have no sense of did people laugh where they were supposed to laugh? Did they cry where they were supposed to cry? Were they scared when they were supposed to get scared? I didn't get to experience any of that. But if I do a feature or an indie feature, um, I get to go into a theater and watch, oh, did it work? Did, did what I, you know, and then stand outside and, you know, when... When I did Perfect Sisters, and uh, it was a movie about two brilliant young uh, high school students who came up with the perfect crime to kill their alcoholic mother, who was a train wreck. Um, I my goal was to get you to the end of that film, and even after they committed this crime, to still be somewhat sympathetic to the two girls. And my favorite thing was to stand outside the theater and hear people argue with each other. They should have gone to prison. They shouldn't have gone to prison. Should have gone for longer. They shouldn't have gone for longer. That's what, I, that's what you want. You want them to walk out and be at odds with, with what the story you just told, as opposed to walking out and be bored or have no, no, no sense of um, outrage or anger or, or contentment or happiness. Or, you know, just to have to, ennui is the worst thing you can ask from an audience. Do you ever fly to different cities and get out of sort of an industry-based town? If I can, I love to go to other cities um, and watch. But I... Again, I came from the television movie business, so of the 60 movies and series, I've only done three features. So most of what I got, I got from uh, relatives calling me going, hey, I saw your movie. Or when email came out, you know, friends and family. Or when Facebook came out, hey, I saw your movie. But I don't get to get the visceral response, which I really miss. Um, I'll tell you, <laughs> I directed an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in season five, and uh, again, no, you know, goes out and I don't know. And it was Gia that told me that there's a whole YouTube channel where people watch something on television, but primarily series, and videotape themselves. It was fa fantastic. So now I've, I got to watch people watch my work. <laughs> it's great. I mean, as a TV movie producer, we never get that. We never get that. I mean, I would have screenings of all of my films before it aired on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, TNT, whatever, MTV, whoever I was working for, I would screen it the week before for friends and family. Um, I would rent a theater and screen it because it was the only time I was ever going to see the audience reaction. 
I mean, I did, I did John Candy's last film, which he directed and starred in, called Hostage for a Day for Fox. Um, and that was a balls-out comedy. I mean, it was, it was joke, 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 character comedy. And the only way I was going to know if people laughed where they were supposed to laugh was to have a screening. And we had a big screening. We had a big, we rented a big theater and got a big audience. And I got to see them laugh where they were supposed to laugh, which ho hopefully John was there somewhere in spirit enjoying it as well. How do you know a story is great? Wow, how do I know a story is great? That's a good question. I have to trust my instincts and my gut. I think uh, for me, spending a childhood and a high school years and college years watching lots and lots and lots of movies gave me a film language that I think uh, allows me to spot a good story. Um, I've seen so many really good movies and so many bad movies um, and read so many scripts and so many bad scripts that uh, I think the experience of that uh, kind of indoctrinated me to spotting something when it's special. Um, I think if you, the longer you walk in the wilderness, the easier it is to spot a forest or water, I think. And so for me, I have a very in-depth film language from having watched endless black and white movies from the 30s and 40s and 50s. So I think that I mean, I've watched every movie on the AFI 100, for example. Um, so I think that helps. I think it also helps me recognize something that's too similar to something, or oh, well, that's an homage to, and you know, okay. And either either they've done it well or they haven't done it well. Um, and I, you know, there are certain filmmakers like Billy Wilder who uh, who I would love to pattern my directing career after, who I admire so deeply. And so I think you know, following their instincts and reading what they did, what they thought, um, I think informs my decisions as well. How do you know if a script is ready for financing? Wow, that's a great question. How do I know a script is ready for financing? Um, I got to pay bills. I mean, the truth is, I think it's, you know, it's real subjective and I think it's instinct because the truth is, uh, you know, if you're in an editing room, you could edit forever. There's no end to when it, you, need a, you need a delivery date. Delivery date informs, and I think pressures and forges the best movie you can make during that time. Uh, it's not open-ended, and I think the same is true with screenplays. I think the better screenplays are the ones that have to be made within a time frame. And so, at a certain point, you have to sort of say, "Okay, this is the best we're going to do to go get the financing right now. We can't play with this for another year. Now is the time. This move, this this has sort of reached the time when it's either we're not going to make it, we're not going to send it out, or it's ready." And um, I tended to, I think, I tended to have a reputation of sending in scripts to networks when I was in the television movie business as a producer that I could get behind. So I would not send it in, much to the chagrin of screenwriters often, until I thought I could defend it. And if I couldn't defend it, um, then I would have the writer do more work. And if I could defend it, then I would send it in. And there were a rare occasion where the writer would do no more work and was unwilling to to fix it, and uh, and I think I scored a lot of points because I would tell the network my candid feelings. So I wouldn't send something in as a lot of my competitors do and say everything's brilliant. Um, I would send something in if it, the writer hadn't done the work um, and say, look, uh, this is not in good shape. I'm sending it to you because I, I can't get the writer to do any more work, but um, this isn't ready yet. I, normally I wouldn't show this to you. 
So you, you're a believer in multiple drafts of notes and revisions, things like that? Oh, screenplays are not written, they are rewritten. The best screenplays have been rewritten and rewritten. There is no such thing as a brilliant first draft that goes to screen, unless maybe you're David Kelly. But uh, I mean, that's, no, movies are rewritten, not written. Uh, all of the, the, the problems in the script get solved in rewriting. All of the character issues get solved in rewriting. All of the production issues get solved in rewriting. You don't want to throw money at a problem. You want to solve it on the page. So uh, yeah, I'm a really big believer in, yes, multiple drafts. And then there's, you know, there's again, the draft that gets your movie ordered, and then there's the draft that you shoot. And those are not the same. And then by the time it makes it to the editing, and it's on the it's timeline, it's the it's script, thing. yeah, it's, yep. it's totally different. It's a different beast, yep. And so is that one thing that you tell your students is to not be so precious with whatever was the final version of the script versus what? <laughs> well, I, my, I have producing students, not screenwriters. Well, I have screenwriters as well, but primarily I'm, I'm teaching producers. And uh, I critique their stuff pretty strongly when they pitch in my class. So they don't have a choice. They can't be precious in my class. Do you also teach them to have tough skin, to, to, to thick yeah, skin? Yeah, I, I, uh, there's a Ten Commandments uh, that I teach them on pitching, and uh, one of them is uh, be strong, but take a punch. You know, the truth is you want to be back in that room again. So even if they're passing, you want that experience to be positive. So, you know, even if they're saying no, find you know, a good moment in that meeting so that when you call back again a year from now and you got another project, they don't go, oh, that was the guy that fought with us. Um, so I think you want to make sure that any pitching experience is a good experience for both people, whether you sell or not. And the truth is, you know, you're not going to sell most of what you know. You only need, you can get 99 no's as long as you get one yes. So the truth is, you've got to be resilient. You got to get up off the mat. And I think that is, I think there are producers that are better at that than talented, and that's their skill is that they just are relentless. It doesn't matter how many people say no, they just keep going. They don't care. They have, they're able to just get knocked down and get back up and take a punch from Mike Tyson and get back up and take another punch from Mike Tyson and get back up. Um, I'm not that resilient. Uh, I, I, take, you know, I take passes a little more personal, less so now than I did in my, early in my career. But yeah, well, I, I had to learn how to have a tough skin. But if you, if you're, if you definitely can't handle no, then you're in the wrong business. Well, going back to Rain Man, you were told initially no, and then you, you kept going, and obviously that worked. Yeah. With Rain Man, we pitched it to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers said, we just bought a project similar to this called Forrest Gump from Steve Tisch, and uh, so we're not going to buy your project. And uh, then we went out and pitched it to someone else, and then we pitched it to United Artists, and then United Artists said yes. And then there was the long gestation after Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise committed because we went through four directors before we actually ended up making the movie. It was, went through Steven Spielberg and Marty Brest and Sidney Pollack before we ended up at Barry Levinson. So it was like four years of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and then directors leaving the project before we actually got it made. Why do you think the industry saw it as a, as a competitor to Forrest Gump? Two separate stories. Uh... Well, the executive at Warner Brothers saw it as similar because it was about uh, a mentally challenged person, whether they were simple or actually truly autistic and savant, autistic savant, as Rain Man was. 
So I think that's why. Um, and they had bought a book. They paid apparently a pretty penny for the book with Steve Tisch, and so they just decided they didn't want to develop. No, the irony is, um, and I'm sure people at Warner Brothers don't forget um, that. Forrest Gump got made at Paramount, and Rayman got made at United Artists, and they both won Best Picture. And neither, both got pitched at Warner Brothers, and both got passed at Warner Brothers. They developed the script in Forrest Gump, and then didn't make it, and then they passed on the idea of Rayman. How do you make a deal with an actor? Well, actor deals are made with the agent, so you never make a deal with the actor. So uh, it now depends on whether or not you're, it's an offer, or they've come in to read. So. Um, Generally, with stars or like you know, number one on the call sheet or number one and two on the call sheet, so the two biggest parts in the script, those are probably going to be offers only. So um, you put a list together with a casting director, and you get approval from your financer, whether it be a studio or a network, and you call the agent and you make the you try and make an opening offer that's going to probably be lower than what they expect, and where you give yourself a little wiggle room to go up, um, and that's. Uh, Sort of, the, and then you know how much you can spend, and so then you get into a negotiation. If they if they read the script and want to do it, um, then there are the rules that, you know, the casting director has sessions. And you go in and watch twenty or thirty actors play a part, and then pick one. And uh, hopefully, those deals are very easy to make because they've come in already and read for you, so you know they want to do it, and they kind of know how much money is in the budget for that role. Do you think a movie has to have at least one star or, or maybe more? Uh, I don't think it's up to me whether or not a movie has a star. I think that's up to the person who's financing it. So internet, if you're on a feature, the international marketplace will dictate whether or not they want a star and certainly the studio or network. Um, I, you didn't make a television movie without at least one recognizable star, uh, sometimes more than one. Um, I rarely made a television movie where there wasn't somebody that you knew either from movies or television really well. Um, whose name or you know immediately rang true as somebody you knew or had seen. Um, I think in the independent feature business, you have more luxury because you have a captive audience. You know, in television, they got to tune in and stay. So you have this problem, which is I'm going to flip to another channel at 10 minutes in or 20 minutes in, and once an audience sits down in the movie theater or they've paid their eight bucks in pay per view on at their home. They're in. You got their money. You got their deal. But in television, they got to watch those commercials all the way to the last, you know, seventh act and eighth act. So it's a very different scenario. So you know, we look at them very differently. True. They can and they can pull their phone out in the movie theater, which they shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. But but you, st you still have their mm -hmm. their ticket sales. Yeah. So, yeah. You don't lose them that way. When you executive produce a movie, are you putting in your own funds? Well, when you executive produce a movie for a network and you're on the hook for deficit, it's all your own funds. So um, if it's a $2.7 million movie and you've gotten money from Lifetime and money from an international distributor, let's say Sony, and you're shooting in Winnipeg, so you have a 25% tax rebate, all of that doesn't get paid when you shoot. It gets paid in draws along the way. And the biggest draw is usually on delivery. So you spend all of the money before you deliver it. So you've got to go to a bank, unless you're independently wealthy, which I'm not, um, and borrow it. So the tax credits are borrowed against, the network's 
license fee or funding is borrowed against, the international distribution fee is borrowed against. So in some ways, it's all of your money. And then, of course, if it's a $2.7 million movie and you end up spending $2.8 million movie, that's your money. There's nobody to go back to and say, I need more. The international receiver is not going to give you more. The network's not going to give you more. And obviously, the tax credit people are not going to give you more. So, um, so you got to make sure you spend two seven, and maybe if you can spend two six five and not affect the outcome of the movie, you can put in a little extra money in your pocket. But generally, yes, it's all your money or the bank's money. What is gap insurance? Gap insurance is for independent features um, where there's a gap between how much money you've raised and how much you need, and an insurance company will cover that on the idea that there's money going to be coming in once it gets released. So you, in the feature business, you have upside. In the television movie business, we don't get to share in the advertising. So once I deliver a movie, there's no more profit for me. So I have to make it on the television movie itself before I deliver. There's no net profits. There's no gross profits. There's no, no, there's no box office, right? So there's no, it's not even pay-per-view. So there's nobody sending me a check after I've delivered my television movie to Lifetime or Hallmark or CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox. Um, in the feature business, there's box office, there's pay-per-view, there's streaming, there's all these sales that can get made that can generate more income. So the Gap uh, Insurance is looking at all those revenue streams and saying, okay, is this a good bet? If it's a good bet, well, you pay for an insurance policy and we'll give you the money and then we'll recoup it from you, but you're going to get it from all those other revenue streams. How do you talk to someone into giving you money for a movie? Uh, you got to be a really good storyteller. I think pitching has got to be your best skill if you're asking somebody for money. Because they're not investing in the movie, they're investing in you. Um, they're counting on you to deliver that story you just told them. But they're really counting on you. They're hoping that your experience and your talent is what's going to get it across the finish line and make them money. So if I'm pitching a network, they're counting on me to deliver that movie that I just pitched them. Um, not to hand it off to someone, and they count on my experience and my background to be what's going to get them the movie that they want. And if it's an independent financer and some, some rich person that wants to invest in a movie, then it's even more tenuous because they don't have advertising that's going to cover them. They don't know where their money's going to come back from, so it's, it's more risky. And so you better be a really good storyteller. You better be confident. Passionate. I think passion is the most important thing you can bring to a pitch. Um, you know, my favorite quote about Hollywood is from William Goldman, where he's the thesis of his book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, is nobody knows anything. And the truth is, we don't. We, otherwise, every movie would be a hit and every series would be a, a 40 share. But they're not. And nobody sits out to make a flop. So Every time you go in, you have the highest of expectations, and yet we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know which ones are going to work and not work. Um, my friends, you know, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who I went to Brandeis with, when they wrote Friends, they sure as hell had no idea that's what they were going to have. Um, and I have friends, that, you know, on the other side of that coin who do things that everybody says is going to be a hit. And then I remember when I worked at Goober Peters, we had a movie with Dennis Quaid, who was a big star, and Martin Short, who was an even bigger star. And it was the highest testing. At that moment, it was produced by Steven Spielberg and Goober Peters, so they had these two powerhouse producers. And at that moment in time, it was the highest rated, uh, highest testing comedy in Warner Brothers history. And there was a movie called Inner Space, and it was a massive flop. 
And nobody predicted that. So that's the truth. Nobody knows anything. So if you're not passionate about it, if you don't bring to that meeting where you're asking somebody for money, incredible passion and desire and enthusiasm to try and get them to overcome those fears that nobody knows anything, then the chances they're gonna buy it are pretty slim. Or I think about the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, this is endless. <laughs> but I mean, it, it especially, I mean, it, yeah. a found footage movie that yeah. it just, it, yeah. it didn't seem like it would be something. And, and Paranormal activity. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. South Park was a, a, a Christmas greeting card that got sent around. And Comedy Central saw it. So, I mean, you, you really don't know. Nobody knows anything. Nobody put the, put those shows on and went, oh, that's going to be a hit. Or that's going to be a flop. So from the passionate storytelling uh, point of view, is that something you saw with uh, Peter Goober? I mean, did he... Oh, I, uh, yeah. Both Peter and John were two of the best people at pitching I ever saw. I learned at the feet of the masters. But even even my mentor, Tom Tannenbaum, who, who taught me the business before I met Peter and John, was extraordinary at pitching. Um, yeah, I watched, I learned it at the feet of the masters. They, they were extraordinary. And you know, when there was three networks and those were the only places you could go to sell something, you better be good at pitching because there was no other place to go. Once they said no, you heard three no's, you were done. Now, you, you know, you could be here until the cows come home and still not have pitched every network that can buy. So, you know, it's a luxury now. You can just keep going and going and going with an idea. But when I started, you had three places to go. And if they said no, you were done. Can you pass on some knowledge from what you've learned from your mentors at the feet of the masters, as you said? Uh, well, Peter was a very big believer in uh, getting, looking for an opportunity in every pitch to make a connection to the person. Peter was extraordinary at coming in, scanning the room, spotting a photo or a award or something and having a personal connection to it so he could make a personal connection to the person buying. And he would immediately connect to them, even if he had never met them. So by the time he, we went in to start to pitch, there was a familiarity between the two. Oh, our kids went to school together, or oh, you're a fan of uh, the New York Giants, or oh, you grew up in, in Brookline, I grew up in Newton. You know, these are the things that he was extraordinary at. He also could read a room, and that's the other thing people don't do well anymore. He was extraordinary at that. He could feel like uh, he, he believed, and as do I, and I teach in my class, there's the lean forward and lean back theory, which is if the person you're selling to leans forward, they're interested, they're hooked. They start to lean back, you're losing them. And so don't keep pitching when they're starting to lean back. Wrap it up or go jump to something that's going to get them to lean forward again. But read the room. Watch what's going on. See what they're reacting to. And if it's a pass, remember what worked in that pitch and make sure that that's what you lean on in the next pitch. That the things that didn't work, you kind of skirt around. You're not going to tell the whole story. You're not going to tell every character in the story. So, you know, it's like a comedian and doing a set at the comedy store. Don't repeat the jokes that don't work. And uh, he was great at it. But, he, but you know, he had an enormous passion for everything he sold. You believe that this was the only movie he ever cared about. All the other movies he made he didn't care about, but this one is the one. He made you feel that. And uh, I think you have to do that. I try. I don't know if I'm, I'm certainly not as good as Peter is. But, you know, uh, you have to make people feel 
that this is the most important movie right that minute. What about when he felt something wasn't right? Like it, it, he should pass on it? What, what were some of the the gut instincts that he would get? What well, when, when I would pitch to him, so that's the, that's the other side of the coin, um, he, he, you had to get him quick. He had a very limited tension span. So uh, you better, he better respond to it fast. So you better get out whatever it is, the hook, the concept. It's where I learned the importance of concept because I think concept is the most important thing in a pitch. Um, concept first, then characters, then plot. Plot being the least important thing. And uh, so I learned how to get you know, the sort of essence of what I was pitching to him out fast with a bit of a hook and some like a, an action verb, something that would get him excited right off the bat. Um, I wouldn't wait. There's no benefit in a slow start on a pitch. There's no reeling them in quietly. Um, so that was Peter and I learned that from him. Your focus has been in producing for the last 30 years or so, now writing, directing. Why this transition and what do you see for yourself going forward? I had been a, a very active, prolific supplier of television movies during the heyday of the television movie, sort of the back end of the heyday. So uh, I opened up my company in 1991 and we produced television movies till about six years ago. When I started, there was CBS, NBC, ABC, then Fox, and then this whole incredible number of networks. I made the first movie for MTV, for TNT, for ABC Family, for ESPN even. Um, but now there's pretty much, if you want to own a movie and do what I did in my career, there's pretty much lifetime and very little else. Um, everyone is now working as an employee in sort of the studio model. And so as I saw that coming on the horizon, as it became clear that the, the world that I had succeeded in and enjoyed so much as an independent supplier, movie maker uh, during the 90s and the, the O's, the hots, um, was disappearing. And so I had a choice to continue down that road and just make less movies. But I had really wanted to direct. I had, you know, it, when you hit 60, 65 films and television series, there's not a lot of mountains left to climb. Um, you know, I'd won an Emmy. I'd been chairman of the California Film Commission. I had made movies in uh, pretty much every quarter of the globe. Uh, I had lived out every dream. I desperately wanted to make a Western on Sergio Leone's sets in Almeria. I got to do that. I, I wanted to make a movie in Australia and New Zealand. I got to do that. I wanted to do thrillers and Westerns and romantic comedies and a real comedy with a real comedy genius. And I, I got to do all those things. I worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger on a movie that he directed. So there weren't a lot of mountains left to climb. And I was still young. Um, my kids were headed off to college. And so I wanted more free time to myself. I wanted, I didn't want to have a company with six or seven employees that were counting on paychecks every week, which is a you know pressure on itself. And so about five or six years ago, I said, uh, the only way this is going to happen for me um, is I have to step off the carousel. So I sold my development to one of my friends and competitors in the TV movie business. And I took about six months to decompress. And then uh, I started to look for something I really wanted to direct. And I found a script that I had developed myself, which uh, was one of the only times I've ever developed something at a network and asked for it back because it was really dark and they kept making it lighter and lighter and lighter. And I said, this is not a movie, really not a movie that is going to work light. It has to be as dark. It needs the language. It needs the sex. It needs the violence. 
Um, it was a, definitely an indie feature that we had sold as a television movie. So I picked that script up and I went back to the screenwriters and said, turn this into an indie feature. And they did uh, for free as a favor. And that was my first directing, it was sort of my student film, which was Perfect Sisters, which I made in Winnipeg and with a crew that I had probably hired 10 times and I knew really well and owed me favors and also really wanted to work hard for me. Um, and then I was blessed because for my student film, I ended up getting two Academy Award, you know, one Academy Award winner and Academy Award nominee. And, and then Georgie Henley, who had been in um, great movies and is now going to be in the Game of Thrones sequel. So uh, I had a massive panic attack the night before and called three director friends to talk me off a ledge and went in and directed this little movie. And I loved every minute of it, including the, the you know, the horror of it, which was, you know, I remember the, that editor's cut when I sobbed and when uh, I got rejected from a film festival. And, and then the, the incredible joy of it finding an audience and becoming one of the most successful thrillers on Netflix and getting renewed and watching all the reactions to it and the stuff online and people creating fan fiction and all of the, the reaction I don't get in a television movie and I certainly don't get as the director. Um, and then from there, I decided I wanted to write, and I wrote two screenplays that I sold. And then um, I found that the the quiet solitude of writing was something I loved, and I didn't expect. That was a big surprise, that sitting alone in a room with a blank laptop page um, was not as scary as I thought it would be. Um, and I've adapted a couple of books, and I've done some originals, and I'm loving it. And I'm about to start on my second book. and. I just, it's a new chapter. It's a very different mindset. Um, I sort of likened producing in television movies when I had my company as the guy on Ed Sullivan with the pool cues and the spinning plates. And I would just run to whatever one was wobbling, I would be the guy spinning it to make sure that that one didn't fall. But you'd have to have 20 spinning plates and cues, pool cues to have a business and you had to have employees. And so to, to, to what I do now is much more project oriented. So I enjoy just living with certain characters for long periods of time, but getting up in the morning and going back to them, wait, having them stand on the edge of the, the forest and wait for me. And oh, look, stands back and I get to play with them again. Um, when I did Julianne's script, uh, Girl Who Fell From The Sky, I, I read a lot about what Zemeckis process was on Castaway. And I read a lot about the process um, they went through on 127 hours and I thought, okay, what's it going to be like to write a movie for a single lead for a big chunk of my script where there's nobody for them to talk to? Uh, how do I do that? How do I approach that? And I, I, I remember Hitchcock wrote in his uh, autobiography that the part of the creative process he loved was painting himself into a corner and finding a way out. Um, he made Lifeboat because someone said there was no way you could make a scary thriller if you could see everything from every direction and no one could move. And so he said, okay, well, let's try that. Let's see if that could happen. And he made rope to see if he could make a movie that was all one shot and a continuous take. I like that challenge. It's a very different challenge, a very different headspace than being a producer. Um, I like the creative uh, box that I have to find my way into and out of. And uh, I'm really enjoying it and for as long as I'm enjoying it and able to get people to make my movies or television series or let me direct an episode. I mean, I will say directing an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was the most fun I've ever had in the business. Um, it's a very different experience than when you're the boss. 
you're like a very, very, very expensive substitute teacher. And you come into the classroom and everybody knows each other and they can finish each other's sentences and they can tell all the same jokes and you can't. And yet you're still the boss and yet you still have to decide where the camera's going and, you know, where to cut. And so it's, it's a really, you know, and they have so much more money to spend. So coming from the television movie indie feature business where, you know, we'd have very little time and no money. Uh, it was amazing to me when I could have any crane or any lens and all the things, all the toys I never got to play with, I got to play with on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that was a, just a totally new, after all these years in the business, I had a new experience. And I guess the thing I needed the most, which is why I left producing on a big scale and decided to write and direct, was fear. I wanted to be scared again. There was nothing in the television movie business as a producer that was daunting because I had done it all. There was no challenge. I remember we were shooting um, Patricia Cornwell's move book for Lifetime and uh, we had a, the third lead had not been cast on a Friday and we went to camera on Monday and we were in Toronto and we were casting this part out of Los Angeles. And uh, I was in my office talking to the network and talking to the casting director and I had my feet up and I had an iced tea in my hand and the production coordinator and the UPM and the line producer all walked in my office and closed the door and said, why are you not freaking the hell out? And I said, because come Monday morning, there will be an actress in wardrobe, in hair and makeup, saying the lines. How do you know that? Because I've done this so many times. And sure enough, on Saturday, we found a wonderful actress and Ashley Williams got on a plane on Sunday and was in makeup and hair and did an amazing job. Because that's how it works. You've done this enough, you know how things are gonna work out. And I wanted to be scared again. I wanted that panic attack that I had the night before I directed my first day of, first time I yelled action. I wanted, I still have it when I go to pitch a feature, which I had never done before. I go to talk to independent finance. These are scary moments for me. And it's nice to be scared again. I hadn't felt that in a long time.